I was, you know, I saw that there is another section of, of a profession where, where they build up something with a brush and I was really interested. Welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. I'm David Keir and this episode we sit down with Sabi Hunt, a master dental technician. Now, I'm sure you guys have seen his work on social media. Sabi works with some of the best dentists in Australia and around the world. And it it brings us to that point of social media dentistry. We see these cases that are just incredible. They're inspiring. They motivate and push me to do better and continually improve my own dentistry. But the elements of that, there's two sides. One is that these dentists are doing the amazing clinical work, but really that part that makes your jaw drop the part that when you see the case and you can hardly tell what's ceramic and what's natural is because of the master dental technician behind the scenes sabi is one of the best and we have the pleasure of interviewing him today on the dental head start podcast Sabi developed his skills and expertise in Hungary before he moved out to Australia. In this podcast, we talk about that journey, how he learned what he does and how he got to Australia. We learn a lot about the labs that he started in and how he took the steps to where he is today and what he did to practice to get to what he's doing. But the part I think you'll love the most is when he talks about cameras and photography and his tips to getting the images that you want to be able to show your cases both to your lab and to your patients. He gives a bunch of different tips on products and things that you can use like flashes and brackets things also for taking the optimal shade there's a little instrument that he suggests you buy to help you line up your shades and get the right color first time we talk a little bit about margin location and tooth preparation of course as a lab tech he's seen it all and he's able to give some tips to help us with that I really think you're going to enjoy this chat with Sabi Hunt. And if you want to find more about Sabi and what he has to offer you, go to huntdental.com. That's H-A-N-T dental.com. You can also find his course, his photography course on cpdjunkie.com.au. That course is sold out until October. It's very popular. I recommend you check it out. But if you want to find out some tips, go to cpdjunkie.com.au slash photography to get his free cheat sheet on dental photography. All that will be in the show notes, as with all the links that he suggests in this podcast. And of course, if you're doing amazing ceramic work, often you want to line those teeth up. Invisalign can help you with that. And to learn to provide this kind of work, ripeglobal.com can start you on the journey to producing the highest level dentistry. Thank you to both of our supporters of this podcast. Enjoy the chat with Sabi Hunt. Aesthetics is not just prepping teeth. If we want to be minimally invasive, we need to use aligners or some sort of orthodontics to put the teeth in the right place before we change their form. And of course, the pioneer of this is Invisalign. They've got the most experience, the most cases have gone through their platform and the most in-depth tools to use to get your patients from where they are to where they want to be. Once you're ready to provide aligners, Invisalign Go is the perfect entry point. It's the first step in becoming an Invisalign provider, allowing you to do relatively simple cases effectively and efficiently with their online tools. Go to invisalign-doctor.com.au to start your aligner journey today. Sabi Hunt, welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. Thank you, David. It's really great to have you on, Sabi. And... um, it's the first time we've had a dental technician, a master dental technician, and I really appreciate your time. Um, for people who don't know you, you're a technician well-known in the Australian space but also worldwide for your work, particularly with um, dentists like Dr. Tony Rotondo and many other great dentists. And your work is astounding. I want to start though, take a step back. 
Why did you choose Western Australia to live? Yeah, it's an interesting story. So um, it's always started like 12, 11th year, years ago uh, back in Hungary. So we had some friends and uh, we had a meeting and uh, or a party and uh, they tell a story about some Hungarians. They moved to uh, Australia, to Sydney. And um, so we actually, uh, we didn't met them, but... Um, uh, so they said it's it's uh, really amazing. So everyone is really kind, and you know if you go to the bus or whatever, it's every everyone is is kind uh, to the others. So they're not um, not like Hungary. So when when uh, <laughs> you know people are pushing, and um, you know it's sometimes a little bit stressful. Um, so that was, was that, the first. Yeah, was that what you found when you came here? Were the people kind and helpful? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, after a couple of years, so when I uh, came here for a, a test job, um, you know, and I was walking on the on the riverside, and people, um, you know, walking by, and they just uh, smiling, and I didn't know why. So I looked around, so something <laughs> behind me or something. But you know, as everyone was just, um, yeah, it was a little bit strange feeling, but uh, it's also really nice. And um, yeah, this was uh, our first experience here, and our family uh, or our friends uh, in Hungary, they had a similar. Uh, experience in Sydney. So I sent out three emails, um, one in Canada, one in Switzerland, and one in Australia. And I only got an answer <laughs> from Australia. So um, <laughs> so it should be that way. And and actually, I tried. So I sent an, a, a second email, a third email to Canada and, and Switzerland to try, you know, maybe there was a link and, you know, it's maybe went to a spam folder or something. But I never got any replies from there. So um, so Australia it was. And actually, I started the whole process because um, um, a migration agent we contacted, he told me that, um, you know, because my profession is, is quite special, I don't need to make an English test like IELTS. So I was really happy, you know, I, I don't <laughs> have to do any tests uh, in English, so I can do that. So I came to, um, to Perth for 10 days in 2009 July uh, and uh, so I spent more than a week here it was winter time so not the best uh, season but I still looked really nice and uh, the people everyone the guys in the lab was uh, really kind and uh, yeah, it was really amazing so I was really happy to to come here so but when when I went back to Hungary uh, all the migration process was quite slow the visa process and uh, like September Saturday morning, my wife um, coming in in the room and wakes me up. That wake up, wake up! Uh, the migration a- agent sent an email. You have to do an IELTS, and I was oh god, I don't. That's that's the last thing I want. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we, you know, we signed a, a contract, so you know, I was keen to come, and every I thought everything is on 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 the right way, and uh, then this information came and. So yeah, um, so what to do? Um, yeah, I have to do. I have to work. So I, I had a lot of uh, work in the lab, um, similar like here. So what I've done, I listened uh, some ebooks. Um, I started with Harry Potter. Yeah, you know, the yeah, first yeah, couple yeah. of chapters, I didn't understand anything. So, <laughs> so uh, but yeah, I just listened, listened, and I went after work uh, to an English teacher. Um, to prepare myself or you know she prepared me for the IELTS test so after how long did week, you have to repair 
two weeks. Oh, two weeks. Because yeah, because I, I wanted <laughs> you know I wanted it really quickly. So yeah, of course, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, so the next, uh, I was lucky because there was an empty space on, on the next IELTS test. So I think it was two or three weeks maximum. And I went, I was so nervous. And, you know, especially I finished. I didn't know if it's good or not. Um, yes, I went back to work and every day I checked the email, you know, if it's an email coming with the, the results. <laughs> and one day it came and I opened and uh, I had to get 5.5, uh, I think an average, but I think the minimum should be 5.5. And uh, so... I got it. That's that's amazing. So obviously coming coming here, you know, you you had that plan, but it took a while to get there. But the the intensity of having to do that kind of English test, I think um, it's exactly what I imagine of you. And we've talked a lot in recent months, but you're someone who's got such attention to detail and dedication to your work as well. So I can imagine you applied that double time for two weeks and. And you've, you've made a big move. Can I ask, um, I've got a f- whole bunch of stuff I want to cover with what you've just mentioned. You've you know, covered a lot, but can I just quickly ask, um, what's an oral design lab? Is, um, is that a membership? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, Willie Geller, I'm not sure if you heard about him. So, he's um, he created a, a ceramic system called Creation. So, and he created this group. And so, basically, he invited or accepted a an application from other technicians, but I think it's it was like uh, invitational. So if he saw someone's uh, work and he liked that work, then he invited that person. Um, so and that's how it's this group is start to grow up and getting bigger and bigger. And so every every country they they had some kind of uh, some labs, you know, with technicians. And uh, so the group called Aura Design. So those members can use this logo and this name. Um, and, and also some dentists was a member, not, not many dentists. So probably back then when I looked for, for labs, maybe 10 or 15 uh, dentists uh, was a member in the Ori Design Group. So, but yeah, if someone were in this group and were a member, they, they are, are really good technicians. So, yeah. Okay, so a good way for us, say, if we're looking for a new technician and for some reason we can't use you, <laughs> um, we can find someone who's a member of the Oral Design Lab. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, I think nowadays it's getting more and more members, so maybe they're not as strict with the... Uh, I'm not sure. So I heard different stories that um, nowadays it's easier to be a member So because they want technicians who advertise their products. Um, so they have different ceramic systems for different uh, kind of restorations for PFM, Ciconia. Uh, now they have, I think, press ceramic, uh, like lithium disilicate uh, layering system, and also they have teeth. So it's a big business as well. And, yeah, um, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. So it's, but back then, probably that was the easiest way to find um, a good lab. And there was not too many. So I think in Australia, uh, 10 years ago, there was maybe only four or five technicians, uh, no right design member. How would you suggest someone looks for some, uh, say they're looking for a new technician, they want someone who produces really good work. How do you suggest someone feels that out and finds the right technician for them? Like for a uh, dentist? Yeah, a dentist, yeah. Yeah, I think I would go to Instagram and, and Facebook um, because otherwise, otherwise it's, it's quite hard. 
um, you know, if someone is really good in marketing, they can, they can, um, you know, advertise a lab and, and create a really nice image of a lab, but you don't really know what's the quality if you don't see the work. So, but if someone put his or her work on Instagram and Facebook, then you have a, a clear, um, or much clearer image that uh, what's the quality of that technician. So, and I think the reason I, I was able to come here is because when I send my email with my photographs, it was quite easy to, to judge my skill, skill level. Um, because otherwise, you know, you can tell I was working here and here, here, I was on this and this course, but what you can actually do, uh, you can easily tell with photographs. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's, uh, of course, something that a lot of dentists are using as well to differentiate themselves, which um, I think is, is pretty amazing. Let's um, just a quick step back. I'd love to get a, an idea. You're saying, of course, you you know you grew up and trained in Hungary. Um, what was it like? What was your childhood like? Yeah, so when I was young, um, so until 1990s, there was uh, Hungary still a communist uh, country. Um, so what I remember, um, not too many things because I was young, but I remember that when you went to a, a shop or somewhere to buy something, there was not a big, um, you know, was, so it's not like hundreds of different shoes or, or, or jackets or whatever, or t-shirts. So it's just maybe five or six. So it's really, uh, limited, um, options, but, um, I think, we were still happy, especially as kids, um, because we don't have too much distractions like nowadays. So we have two kids with my wife, um, eight and, and 13, and we see that how difficult for them and for us as well, because uh, to make them happy, because nowadays it's much easier to get basically everything they want. And um, so there is no, not much effort to uh, achieve something or get something. So while back, we had no, but not many computers or TVs, especially in Hungary. Like when I was young, there was only um, like a couple of days, there was no broadcasting at all in the television. So you can't sit there and, and watch TV. So we went out and, uh, you know, with friends out in the, in the wilderness. So that was much better, I think, for kids. So, but yeah, it was, uh, it was nice. And, and the school was pretty good, especially, I was lucky uh, the lab where I was apprentice, so I can I can I could learn everything, because usually even back then there was uh, um, quite usual that when you go somewhere, a couple of years you just only do plaster work and, and model work and and uh, no one in the lab was actually really keen to teach you because they try to protect their knowledge. I think it's quite similar nowadays as well. So people are are scared to lose their, um, I don't know, um, their clients because they, they show something to a, a technician. And I heard stories that, you know, some young technician went to a course and when after the course they uh, reached out for different dentists they, and they said, you know, I was on this technician course, so now I can do the same as, as he, but much cheaper. So, but... Um, you know, if you're in this industry, you know that uh, to achieve something, you need a lot of years of practice, and it's not not straightforward. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's true artistry, and um, I think most of us as dentists can can grasp how uh, you know hard and difficult that kind of work must be. Um, how did you find your way 
into becoming a ceramist? Um, so the lab where I uh, was an apprentice, uh, I I learned um, dentures, I learned uh, metal works so or metal frameworks, and also for partial dentures, the, the chrome work. You know, when you have, um, I'm not sure in English how you call that because I've never done uh since I'm here. <laughs> Cobalt yeah. chrome work for a partial denture? Yes, yes. So how do you call that part? You know, what you see, it's polished up and, and uh, shiny. And I think the it's a chrome work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that'd be right. Yep. Yeah, that's how they call it. So I've done a lot of that one, but I was, you know, I, I saw that there is another section of, of a profession where, where they build up something with a brush and I was really interested. So, and I always asked my... Um, my boss that, you know, when, when, when can I learn or, you know, I, I'm happy to stay here after work and, and just practice some. And eventually I've done, um, one, one bridge, just a demo bridge and, uh, or, you know, some failed frameworks. So I use that one to build up a, a demo. Uh, but I never really got into because there was not much time and maybe they wasn't too keen to teach me, um, which I totally understand. So it's, it's, um, there was, some uh you know times of the year when wasn't enough work so uh, and that's why i looked somewhere else in my in my hometown so just in in the same town and there was a a big practice lab uh, with eight or nine uh, uh, surgeries and uh, a dental lab on the on the first floor um, with i think 10 15 technicians so and there was there was a friend uh We've been together in the school, so and I asked her that if it's any chance to get into the to this lab, and uh, so finally uh, she helped me, and so I got a chance. I done some uh, demo there, and they were happy. So, but I was again back to low because back to the the bottom because I had no experience with ceramics. So, um, so I, I learned ceramic there, and uh, I worked there for eight years. I think that was too long. Um, I should leave <laughs> earlier, but, but I was. Well, you like to move around every three to four years, you said. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there was some change. So, after, I think after four or five years, um, I was um, supervisor of the ceramist um, technicians there. So, but I didn't really like that. So, I I was always happy to help others, but I don't like to manage them, or I don't want to tell someone to do this and that because. I don't know. It's I just always really focused on what I do. Is um, you know telling someone else what to do is is not my uh, strength. So fair enough. Um, with that, you obviously then became you know a master dental technician. Um, what is that? What is the steps? What is the difference? Yeah. So in Hungary, um, you have to be a technician for five years uh, before to go to the master school. Um, it was a one year long. Um, I think every second week we went uh, to a, um, a nearby city, and there was some uh, classes about, you know, different uh, topics. And um, I think every, um, I'm not sure, maybe every three months we had some kind of test, and also after six months and one year we had a practical test as well. So after one year, we done this practical test. I think that was two or three days, uh, three days long, and we done basically everything from layering to framework to denture, um, and 
So when you uh, when you have the right resort, then you got the the master degree. Yeah. Okay. So it really separates the I guess the best um, technicians apart in a way. Or would most technicians go through it, or is it a unique mm, thing? Yeah, I'm not sure about the percentage, but back then um, there was some rumors about you know if the in the future you can only uh, open a lab when you have a master degree. And especially you can only have an apprentice if you have a master's degree. So I was thinking, you know, um, maybe I, I had uh, six years experience when I've done or, or even more. So now I was thinking, you know, this is again a new challenge. So why not to take it and, and do it? So and I'm happy to have it. So I have a, a degree on the wall. So that's all because, um, you know, otherwise you on the same, uh, you can be on the same level as a master without without any degree it's just probably sounds good yeah <laughs> it does sound good it definitely does um so you then obviously started to really focus in on your ceramic work um is that that is all you do now is that right crown and bridge ceramic work yeah so it's um it happened um even when i was unemployed on that big practice lab so i, I mostly done ceramic work not much framework so basically just layering all day and um, because that was that lab um, had some uh, invest into dental tourism as well. So every week or every second week, we had uh, groups from Switzerland. So we had to do the jobs quite quickly. And uh, so I had months when I done like 300 units uh, in a month. So right. okay. uh, like what, what would be the normal? Um, what would be your average month? now <laughs> oh yeah actually now because we're going to get into that as well i know it's a lot less now now maybe it's uh, it's 30 units per month yeah 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 and i think um when i when i heard that you mentioned this when we were offline talking another day and and i thought wow that's amazing it shows how much time and effort goes into each of those units that we do see on you know instagram and, and facebook you come back, come over to Australia. You're in Western Australia, and um, you've started working with um, a local lab. When did you start your own lab? Uh, last year, last year in February, March. So I, I worked, um, yeah, eight, nine years to look. Um, so I had a, a break after three years. So I went to Brisbane. Uh, to work with a friend, uh, Steve Sale, there, and we worked with Tony. But uh, the timing wasn't perfect because um, when we get there, um, Steve's uh, clients has some issues, so we we haven't got enough uh, cases for a while. So that was um, a bad timing, actually, but we didn't know before, so I was really looking forward. So after three months, I, I had to decide what to do because um, um, Steve was paying my uh, you know wages. So... And because I had a family behind me, so I was thinking, you know, maybe I'm just coming back to Perth because uh, they were happy to get me back. So, and when we decided in that one to move, uh, to come back, then uh, jobs just, cases just start to come in. So, uh, and uh, we worked long hours um, for a couple of months after that. So, but yeah, we came back uh, after eight months. And uh, yeah, we really enjoyed the time in, in Brisbane. So I worked a lot, especially in the second half, but it was great because we can um, look around and, and Brisbane and Queensland is totally different than Perth. So uh, we really enjoyed. So and um, if in, in the future I, I want to move somewhere, probably I want to move to Sunshine Coast because I, 
I really fell in love with, with that uh, area. That's really nice. <laughs> it is a beautiful area. Um, my wife's family, well, she grew up there. She's from New Zealand, grew up in Sunshine Coast, and I mm. spent a few months up there. It's a beautiful part of the world. bit too humid for me, though. Just going to put it out there. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so, obviously, when, when you're in Brisbane, did you have a lot of time to work quite closely with Tony, Dr. Tony Rotundo at that time? No, it's interesting because uh, I saw some patients uh, because patients can came to the lab. Um, so we wasn't uh, close to the lab. So it was maybe 30 minutes drive or I can't remember exactly. So we were in a, in a suburb far from the city, but I saw some patients there. And um, But when we when cases started to come in, uh, we were so busy. I, I had no time actually to go out and... And that's my experience, and that's why I never really was, um, how can I say, um, keen to to work side by side with a dentist, because I know that uh, if we side by side, I can't do the same amount of work, and probably that's not generate enough income for me. So, uh, and that's why I really like to, um, you know, it's it's basically happened by accident to. Uh, that we we found each other with with Tony, uh, but um, what I found is it can work this way, and it's actually for me it's much more predictable because if uh, like back in Hungary when I saw patients in my lab, uh, that was much more time consuming. So it's not like you know I have I don't know a couple of days to finish th- this uh, job. Uh, a patient came in. And it depends on the case. Maybe she or he stay there one hour, but sometimes three or four hours, and that's just ruined the whole day. So, and so that's why I really, um, you know, understand the, the difficult situation what you sometimes you have in in the practice because yeah, it's it's really hard to manage. I'm just laughing, thinking there's a lot of dentists out there listening to this, thinking, yeah, dentistry would be a bit more predictable without the patients. <laughs> But um, no, it definitely sounds like you, yourself and, and the many amazing dentists you work with, particularly we're thinking about Tony because I think a lot of people know that um, yourself and Tony work together a lot. Um, what you do is clearly very predictable, even though you're on the other side of the continent. Um, you've mentioned before you use quite a, a clear protocol um, to a photo communication protocol with Tony to to get that information across. Do you mind mm-hmm. elaborating a bit on that? Yeah, so it's nothing special. It's just um, so if you have the right settings for your camera and you have the right setup, um, I think um, then it's, it's quite easy to work. Um, that that's, that part is easy. So, uh, and that's why I always tell on my courses that um, you know taking photos with a digital camera is much easier than uh, just imagine back with uh, film and and. Uh, and negative so that was much much harder and i know that we together when he started he used um diaphragms uh, you know that small um and he's got a uh, a panel light panel and and with a magnifying glass um he checked the the photos but you can imagine how much easier for us to see the photos on on back of the camera or or on the computer so that part is i think is actually quite easy but what is um is harder is for uh, a technical parties or a technician side is that um, when you see an image, uh, when you have the experience, you can tell which ceramic to use to achieve that kind of result. 
but if you don't have the experience, you can have a lot of uh, failures. And um, so when I'm when I teach layering, um, less and less, unfortunately, because it seems like uh, not many people interested in layering anymore. Uh, but what I learned participating courses and also in in my work is that it's actually not that difficult to uh, achieve a a good result but you have to have some kind of experience with the ceramic as well so uh, the best way is is, you know practice and do some um, demo work without any kind of patient and also if you have time you can do um, if it's a single crown you can do twice i know it's you know your time and no one will pay for that, but you can learn at least. And um, so that's why I like to uh, document my layering. Um, so at the beginning, I use just, you know, pen and paper and, and draw down my layerings. But uh, nowadays I'm using a keynote file. And uh, so when I, because when you do a case, you do the layering, you send to a dentist um, and maybe you only see photos a couple of weeks or months later and you just forget what did you use. But if you have some kind of documentation or record of your layering, then you can see, okay, so this, this worked, this not. So it's quite, quite useful. And, but yeah, it takes years, um, especially if you, if you try to do by yourself or experience by yourself. Yeah, yeah. It sounds uh, obviously to get the level of predictability. Yeah, you have to be um, refining that process and refining the the technique the whole way through. Um, you mentioned you know the settings are really important. So with Tony, you know exactly what settings he's using and his setup, and mm-hmm. that allows you to then um, I guess dis- decipher what that photo is telling you. You know more clearly what settings. Or I'm going to get a bit into photography. What settings should people have in general or what mistakes are people doing with their settings of their camera yeah so i think the first thing uh, we need to understand is that uh, the most important part of photography is light so um, what kind of light source they use and you know if you look for different options on on, um, on the internet you can find different um, you know reviews and and also different options and opinions but many times what i found that people are recommend a ring flash because they think it's easier and smaller and at probably cheaper than uh, like a dual flash setup but my experience is that the biggest difference is when you or someone switch from a ring flash to a, a dual flash setup it's just night and day uh, because uh, the ring flash is really concentrated light so it's excellent for documentation, uh, intro photographs, or when uh, when you're using a mirror. But when you want to capture uh, details, especially colors in the teeth, uh, the twin flash has just much more potential because it's much more three-dimensional uh, color because it's coming wider, so it's not uh, close to the lens. And that's why you, uh, you have to use a, a bracket, a flash bracket. So... From my uh, experience, the distance between the two uh, dual flash should be around 30-40 centimeter. So if they much close to the lens, uh, this three-dimensional um, uh, colors are, are much uh, less visible or much less uh, prone. So yeah, that's my experience. If you position them wide, uh, you have a much nicer image and with much more details. 
I think um, you, you've shown me some pretty amazing photos where you compare the twin flash setup with the 30 to 40 centimetres from the sides for interior work compared with a ring flash. And the, the difference is it's quite, it's quite surprising when you haven't thought of that before how different it is. Um, one of the reasons that you pointed out to me is that reflection that happens. And yeah. I think um, uh, w- would you mind if we shared one of those photos in the show notes? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm really happy. That's great. As many as possible. It'll be on the website and those comparisons are really important. We might share a few other pointers that Sabi um, gives out about photography and what setup, etc. You said light is the most important thing. So if someone has, say, a twin flash setup, what are the two ways they can use it and um, how does that change the light? Yeah, so if you want to really use that uh, twin flash, the best potential, you definitely need a bracket. Um, so you, you put your flashes on, on uh, a flash bracket and you can move them far from the from the lens. Um, and usually the brackets you can buy nowadays uh, online or any kind of um, dental photography website, they usually um, make able to position the flash close to the lens and and far from the lens. So uh, when you do anterior work, uh, especially shade photography, you position your flash wide. And when you want to take posterior photographs or mirror photographs, then you position your flash close to the lens. So it's basically two in one because when you put your twin flash very close to the lens, it's similar to a ring flash. Mm, mm. I remember, yeah, you're showing me that and I was kind of like, oh, wow, I'd, <laughs> I hadn't put two and two together. So that's something that I think people will take from this for sure. Um, if we take a step away from the, the light source and think about the camera setup, what, um, what camera setup do you actually recommend? Um, I think uh, a crop sensor camera, it's probably the best option uh, still. Um, I'm experiencing with a, a mirrorless camera as well, but uh, mostly because uh, I'm using for record videos. So it's a Sony mirrorless camera, A6400, uh, with a crop sensor camera, uh, crop sensor inside. So the camera I'm using is the same uh, what Tony uh, has. The, the 610 is a full-frame Nikon camera. And I just recently compared the two cameras and um, on object photographies, it's really hard to tell which one is which. So um, so I think um, a crop sensor camera, it can be a mirrorless or it can be a DSLR. Uh, it's a great option. Um, especially recommend crop because a full frame is usually more expensive. Um, Quality-wise, you won't see a huge difference because the big sensor is usually has more dynamic range and better for high ISO. But for dental photography, we, we don't need these um, factors. So that's why I not recommend a full-frame camera. I have a full-frame camera because I'm using for landscape and, and portrait as well. But otherwise, a crop sensor is smaller, cheaper, uh, lighter as well, and usually have all the options you need. And you don't need to buy the brand new. So if you have a, a tight budget, um, I highly recommend to look around on, on Gumtree or eBay. You can easily find um, maybe a two or three years old camera. Like if you look for Canon, like Canon 70D or 80D, probably you can find under $1,000. Uh, if you have a tighter budget, you can buy a Canon 60D around $500. Um, so 60D is nine, 10 years old camera but it's still still pretty good. So 10 years old cameras are still really amazing for uh, dental photography. So, uh, you know, those differences, what you can get from a, 
a two years old camera compared to a 10 years old is, is not noticeable for us. I think a lot of people who are listening to this are, you know, students and graduates and younger dentists, and perhaps the budget is quite an important thing. So there'll be a lot of people out there getting those secondhand um, cameras. I guess the other thing is if we're new to photography, um, getting that kind of camera gets us in the door at least, and then we can go take steps forward. If they're going to buy a camera, say they go and get one on um, eBay or, or whatever, Gumtree, and they get a 60D, um, a nice camera, what lens should they get? Yeah, so if we, if they, um, and again, Canon or Nikon, doesn't matter. So uh, the reason I have a Nikon camera, because when I started, I, I started with a, a film camera, a Nikon film camera, so I already had some uh, Nikon lenses, so that's why I started with Nikon. But I was lucky because in the lab uh, where I worked here in, in Australia, we had a Canon camera, a Canon 60D, and I worked with that one, and I had a Nikon, and I can tell it's, it's no difference. So... It's, it's up to you, and it's, it's really the big difference is a light source. So if someone looking for a second-hand camera and, um, you know, a second-hand lens, um, so Canon, I recommend a 60D or 70D. So those are second-hand quite affordable. For lens, uh, the Canon 100mm uh, gold ring lens is um, it's cheaper than the, the L Canon lens, which is... Uh, has vibration reduction, but for uh, dental photography, we don't need uh, vibration reduction. So a Canon 100mm lens is a good option. So I think secondhand, maybe you can get around five or 600. This depends on the, the condition, uh, so how I used. But I recently bought a secondhand Sigma uh, macro lens for 450 And I think um, the previous owner used four or five times. So it's pretty amazing for 400 or 450. Uh, so Sigma is a good option for Canon as well. And um, so even if you buy a third-party lens, don't expect a worse cal- uh, quality because uh, these la- uh, companies like Sigma, Tamron, and, and even Tokina, they really are high-quality lenses. So even if they're not uh, the main manufacturer, they have really good lenses. But just look around because um, especially like Tamron, the new line is just so expensive. Um, I think their lenses are pretty amazing, uh, even better than Canon or Nikon. And they they just know. So they, <laughs> they, they just charge, uh, you know, more than Canon and Nikon usually. But uh, with Sigma and, and a Canon 100mm lens, and if you buy a 60D or a 70D, I guess... You can go below a thousand dollar for the the camera and the lens, and if your budget is really tight, you can buy a cheap Chinese uh, dual flash or even ring flash. And um, I'm just testing one uh, dual flash setup, and that was I think fifty dollars each. So four hundred dollars, you can have a twin flash setup. The difficult part or the expensive part is the bracket because brackets are probably hard to find secondhand because if someone you know bought the bracket they they just use it so i i don't think they will sell um a cheap option available on ebay uh but that's not really comfortable to use it's like i'm not sure if if you heard about the gorilla uh tripod uh, these you know flexible legs so these flash bracket is similar to that one. Um, 
and it's it looks okay because you can put your flash where you want but actually changing the flash position is is quite um, time consuming and inconvenient so um that's but that's only cost like 30 or 40 dollars so uh, you can't get wrong with that one. You can start uh, easily with that one. And I used uh, a similar one for a couple of years. And, and then I decided, okay, I need something more um, convenient. So, and uh, that's when I, when I bought a, a, a proper flash bracket. But yeah, so I think you can easily 1000, maybe 11 or 1200, you can, you can have a, a camera set up and you can use that for five or, or 10 years easily. Yeah, I think um, something I'd like to add, being someone who does, to be honest, pretty rudimentary photography in my dentistry, but it's absolutely game-changing in our ability to explain things to our patients, sit down with our patients and walk through our our treatment. And obviously, there's that next level of communication with our laboratory. Um, I think there's there's almost no excuse. $1,000 to have an amazing setup like that, I think, is a no-brainer. I'm going to have all this in the show notes, but you talked about that gorilla-style bracket that's a bit cheaper but not easy to move. Then what's the brand that you do recommend, the one that easily moves in? Yeah, at the moment what I'm using, um, it's I think as I heard originally from Photomed, so it's an American company, so they have the, I think they call the R2 bracket. And uh, there is a Brazilian company, uh, it looks really similar. Um, and Adam Dental in Melbourne is selling this uh, bracket, it's called Indus Bello. So they have a, a Canon version and a Nikon version. Um, but the Nikon version is only works with uh, the Nikon uh, flash, R1C1 kit. And also one more flash uh, on the market has a similar uh, flash mount because it's a really special uh, flash mount. So if someone buy like a Mets flash or different brands, always check what kind of uh, flash mount it has because uh, the bracket should fit to that one. So they're not not the same. So, but yeah, um, at the moment I am using an Indus Bello fresh bracket. Um, it's aluminium, so it's really light and you can easily change pos- the position of the flash much quicker than with that Gorilla style uh, flash brackets. That allows, like you were saying before, where you can use for interior photography, you have them separated and then for posterior photography, you have them close. And if you can move that quickly, then you can use it for everything, um, which makes a lot of sense. Well, let's talk actually about taking the photos. Um, you probably see a lot of photos taken by dentists of all different skill levels in their photography. Um, what mistakes do dentists make when they're actually just taking the photo? Um, I, th- I will focus on, on shade-taking photos because that's what I usually see and get. Um, sometimes I get photos for smile design, but usually Tony or the dentist do the smile design uh, for the case. Um, so for shade photography, normally the problem is um, if they're using shade tabs, uh, the shade tabs are just not in the same distance from the camera they're not um, close to the the teeth Um, also the angles and probably the reflection so especially if they're using a ring flash it's really hard to avoid those really big uh, specular highlights on the on the shade tabs and on on the teeth as well so if someone using a a ring flash and they don't want to invest into a, a twin flash they can uh, still use the ring flash for shade photography by uh, using a polarizing, a cross-polarizing filter. 
Um, you can easily do by yourself um, or you can buy some uh, pre-made polarizing filters. So, but what, what I usually see is that uh, the shade tap position is not uh, not correct, so it's too far from the teeth. So what I recommend normally is just touch the, the shade tabs to the teeth. So I normally like to hold the shade tabs with, um, uh, it's called a gummy. It's a Shofu, is the brand, is a Japanese company and making this um, Shofu gummy. So with a Shofu gummy, you can uh, hold three, ta- uh, three shade tabs at the same time and holding the shade tabs edge to edge to the, the natural teeth, you can make sure that the, the distance to the camera is, is the same for the shade tabs and, and for the teeth. So you will have the same amount of light. And um, yeah, it's just a positioning. So sometimes people holding the shade tab to the teeth, but they're taking from the lateral view. So um, it's, it's always better to take different angles with the shade tabs. Because especially if you do like a, a lateral uh, restoration, you need uh, some photos from a lateral view as well. So it doesn't matter if you take a photo from uh, the front view, if the, the restoration is on the, on the lateral side, you have to take photos from there. Mm. So you would, would you prefer to have multiple photos? I guess you can then compare. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the reason I like to use the, the Shofugami is because you have free shade tabs, you, so you have different references. Because I'm sure from your uh, your experience is the same is that none of the shade tabs are actually matching the natural teeth because some part is just not matching. So, but if you have a, a selection of three, you can you can uh, have more information for the technician. So many times for me, you know, when Tony takes the photos, he's using A1, A2, A3, and then I can see which one is closer. So that's a big help for me to decide. And many times shades of the, the natural dentition is somewhere somewhere between two shades. So um, that's why it's, it's beneficial. And even if you don't have a gummy, you can still hold two shade tabs with your fingers easily. So um, just to have some extra reference for the technician. Yeah, okay. So make sure your, your shade tab's in the same plane, edge to edge with the tooth, same distance from the lens, but have yeah. more than one. So you've got a reference as well. Yeah. Or just buy a Shofu gummy. Those things, are, they're super useful. Um, I remember you showing me actually at a course, uh, I think it was last year. Um, it, that comes to a question that I'd like to ask that actually a lot of people on Instagram asked when I, I, I put out the, the, the call for questions for you and a lot of questions came back saying, um, what is it that you as the technician need to be able to produce the work you produce? And I want to think about the whole works, so like a good impression, et cetera, et cetera. What do you need to be able to produce what you produce? Yeah, so I think a good impression is quite crucial. So even if your prep is not uh, the worst, the word best, um, or you know, just you still at the beginning of your profession. It's it's. Um, I'm sure everyone like my work still. We have issues our work, but if you have a clear impression, uh, the technician at least can can work with that one. The problem usually is when when it's um, the margin and you don't know where it's ends. So then the technician or I have to decide where to put the margin, and that's just not comfortable. And when you not feel comfortable with your work it's not going to be 100%. So uh, not the result, it's just the efforts what you put into the work. So that's why I, when I get a really nice impression, a really nice prep, I have just an extra pressure 
to do my best and it's, it's a positive pressure so like or a positive stress so when you when you want to show you know you want to do your, your best for it because yes, you say yeah, the best yeah, yeah. That's, but when that's you have cool. something is mushy at the margins um it's just a really uncomfortable feeling and 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 even if you send a photograph or if you send a, the model to the uh, dentist probably he or she can't tell uh, where is the margin and and knowing that what kind of issue can cause later that's that's really uncomfortable mm-hmm. absolutely so with that um I'm, I'm imagining that you don't get a lot of poor impressions nowadays you work with some pretty high level guys and uh, guys and girls and i'm sure they all do amazing work but of course you worked with a lot of um, d- um, dentists over the years what are the issues you see and uh, is there any advice you can give a dentist on their impressions or on looking at the impression or, or anything you can think of to help us give you better impressions yeah so i think retraction is really critical um to have a um, accurate uh, retraction so you have the gap where you can put the uh, uh, the light body impression um and as i saw from tony and from other dentists they use the air to push the the light body into the, the sulcus mm, some dentists prefer to leave the retraction cord uh, in the sulcus i actually don't like that one because when i'm making the models sometimes the retraction cord uh, is just in the way so I prefer when the retraction cord is removed uh, just before the impression. And uh, so like Tony does that way and it works really nicely. Um, what else? Yeah, so and also just recently we discussed with a dentist uh, about a one-step, two-phase uh, impression and the two-step, two-phase uh, impression. So when you, you know, the normal or traditional ways when you're using a hard body and a light body in the same time and you take the impressions or taking a hard body first, uh, then uh, removing the undercuts, um, leave room for the teeth and then using the light body in, the, in a uh, second step. And that's actually a really great technique uh, but the problem is that many times you still have some areas where you didn't remove all the undercuts so and when the the impression can't sit perfectly in the in the same position then you're going to have some pressure points i actually made a um, animation about this one a couple of years ago on, on facebook just to explain the the problems so basically when you you place the impression with the light body back to the patient's mouth, you put some pressure on, on a tray. So, and if the, the tray or the impression is not in the correct position, you're going to have some points where the teeth or the tissue, um, so usually the teeth are pushing into the, the base uh, putty. So, and when you finish the impression, you remove the, the impref- impression tray and that hard body is bounced back or, you know, flex back. And that's not an accurate position then or not an accurate impression. So that's why I think the the two-phase one step is, is better or much more predictable. Um, but I think the retraction is critical. And also what I've learned is um, uh, the temporaries and the prototypes or, you know, provisionals are really important for a good impression because... If the tissue can heal and there is no inflammation, it's much easier to take uh, a good impression. 
So when it's uh, a sulcus liquid or bleeding or something, it's no magic to to take a, a good impression. Yeah, that's something. Um, yeah, I, I guess younger, not younger dentists, sorry, early career dentists um, out there probably haven't heard as much as that some of the best dentists um, do their preparations, do really good temporaries, and leave it to heal before they take their final impressions. And I think for everyday dentistry, that's relatively rare. But for the highest end stuff, that's why it looks so yeah. amazing, and that's how they get their perfect impressions. Yeah, um, usually, usually they not prepare finally the the teeth um, before or when they do the temporaries or the uh, provisionals. So when they remove the provisionals and when they do the final impression, then they do the final uh, prep as well. And also what I heard is that probably only have two or, or three uh, chance to take a good impression because why are you taking the impression? You can, you can um, hurt the yeah. tissue. So yeah, yeah, aggravate it, cause bleeding in, in that yeah. process. Yeah. yeah. That's um. That's really. I think they're good tips. Um, when you are getting this this stuff, so you're getting this good impression. Um, what else could you just list the things that you really need to be able to do what you're doing? Yeah, another critical. Uh, what I mentioned is a provisional. So, uh, and I learned this from with Tony. Is doesn't matter how good is the technician. Um, when you do a restoration for a patient, and the restoration is is different to the provisional or the temporary, it feels really strange or weird uh, to the patient. So, and they have to decide uh, if they accept the restoration or not. But if they feel something is not right or something is different, they rather say no. So uh, with Tony, what we do, or, you know, when um, Tony do the provisionals, he only sending me the final or sending me the impression for the final case. When the, the patient is, is uh, totally happy with the, the length and the shape or, or the position, because those are the most important. So if the position of the incisor edge is not correct, then, you know, it's hard to speak and, and uh, it's not, not a correct way to speak. So, but they test for a week or two weeks or even longer. So and when they're happy with that one, then uh, I can t- start the final and I'm using that information from the provisional you know, the length and the incisor of edge position and also the shape. And I just need to improve a little bit everything. And uh, when they insert in the patient's mouth, it feels really comfortable because it's similar what uh, he or she had with the provisional. You, you raise a really good point there. I wish you told me this three months ago. I had a <laughs> relatively large case um, and we it was actually quite a large bridge and the temporary felt quite different to the final. And although yeah. the case is you know, been successful and patient's happy at the moment. Um, he did make note of that and it was clearly something that he he was thinking about felt different. It just felt different. Yeah, um, yeah. Although it looked very similar, it was from behind it felt different. That's a really, really good point. Does Do you know if Tony takes the impression, an impression of the provisionals? Is this uh, before he takes them off? Yeah, yeah, of course. So I always, not always, but especially with uh, bigger anterior cases, like if it's more than... A single. Uh, usually, I get a provisional study model, so I can use. The, I can take a, a silicon or make a putty key, and I can use that one for designing the case. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. And then, what photos are you expecting or or wanting to receive? Um, so usually, I have um, of the provisional, so I can see, you know, the 
the shape in the mouth as well. Uh, so that's good also that how it's related to the, the lower lip line. Um, Tony sometimes forget um, photos of the, the stump shade, um, <laughs> which is usually not critical if it's not too dark, but sometimes it's just it's nice to see. Um, but it's also really useful, I think, for a technician, especially if you don't see the patient, is to have a, a full-face photograph because, how can I say, um, plan or design uh, a teeth or, you know, select the, the right teeth. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So because that's always hard, you know, to decide. And, and actually with, with uh, working with Tony is easier because when I get the provisionals, I see the, the shapes uh, he selected or the patient is happy with so i just need to you know improve the morphology but usually when i don't have this um, information it's, it's really hard it's really tough to decide what kind of shape to do because i'm i'm just uh, yeah it's guesswork you know, in a way yes yeah. yeah so you receive these photos you've got a really good model um what is it you're looking for on the model what is it lo- you're looking for in the preparations to help you do the best work yeah so what i found the most difficult um with the preps is uh, for uh, we need restorations um, because it's quite normal and uh, quite understandable that the dentists try to save as much as possible of the natural dentition so don't sacrifice for the restoration but especially with veneers it's really hard sometimes to create a nice transition between the restoration and the natural teeth if the the prep is just not uh, how can I say deep enough so not go approximately uh, deep enough um, but it's hard because teeth are usually triangular so when you go deeper approximately you have to remove more uh, of the the tooth structure so I really understand that one because sometimes that's the the difficult part of my work is that um, where's the margin ends is not deep enough so how can I still create something a nice uh, contact surface or a nice shape uh, but the margin is just too far buckly. Uh, that's something I was just talking with a friend about, actually. And um, you're about to say what you recommend, and we'll, well, I would love to hear that. But um, we're talking about where where do we place the margin um, in the interproximal for a, a number of veneers in a row? Um, you were about to say you're about to recommend. Yeah. So w- what I recommend is is you know you can take a an agenate impression of the the temporary or the provisional the patient likes. So before you do the the final. Uh, preparation you basically pour up that agenate impression with a stone and you can make um, basically a demo prep of uh, before you do the final prep in the in the mouth so you can make some silicon keys and you can test how far you should go on the model to have enough room for the restoration and also for the shape so uh, what i recommend is probably buy um, a proper model stone because the stones usually um, practices using are too soft, so it's really hard to to grind with a diamond because usually they they too soft and and blocking the the diamonds. But if you buy like a, a GC a GC Fuji rock, which is is quite hard stone, uh, and you you can leave that for drying for a day, so then it's really dry and you can you can grind uh, with a diamond easily. So on that model, you can easily test. Uh, what is the best prep for that patient. And uh, I think on the day when you do the actual prep in the mouth, everything going to be much easier and much clearer 
When you're, um, that's a really good point. I've never heard or thought of it in that way. We use a lot of putty keys and guides in, in, I guess, in a similar way. But one of the things I'm, I'm still a bit um, unsure about is where to put that margin in approximately that helps you. And we talk about getting into the contact or through the contact for veneers. If we go just into the contact, is there ever a point where the, the definition of that on our impression is not good enough for you to see? Um, I'm not sure if I understand completely. So like if you go too deep or not deep enough or... Yeah, or if we go to a point where the teeth are touching um, and the margin is essentially where they're, they're contacting, is it too sep- too hard to separate those dyes? Uh, no, it's uh, it's normally not a problem. It's, uh, normally what can cause a problem is when a patient has um, a recession, a tissue recession, so you have a black triangle uh, basically. Uh, that can cause some problem because when you're removing the impression from the mouth, uh, it can tear the impression. So, And if the impression is teared uh, or it's not completely teared, but you have some uh, tear in the in the silicon, when you're making the model, that area is not going to be perfectly accurate because um, that part can, can move a little bit. But what I normally suggest, if you have a black triangle before the prep, uh, you definitely have to go deeper because otherwise it's just not possible to uh, close or create a nice emergence profile, you know, unless the patient is happy with the black triangle. But you normally, you know, they want to... Uh, yeah, if they're doing remote, veneers, yeah. they'd like to change that. That's a really good po- point. Those, the two things, or if you have a black triangle and leave a contacting margin, then you'll have a tear, but you'll also not be able to close the black triangle. Yes, So it's yeah. a very clear indication to go through. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so normally when you don't have a black triangle, so when the, the papilla is nice and, and closed, usually if you go halfway through the contact point, so you still have, because the contact area is, is not a point, so it's a surface. So if you go halfway through, that's going to be normally enough for the technician uh, to create uh, a nice shape and a nice uh, contact area with the restorations. Uh, one more critical is the edges in, in the impressions, especially veneers. So it uh, doesn't matter what kind of restoration uh, type you use, um, probably with zirconia, it doesn't matter, or, or PFM, but for Imexpress or lithium desilicate or um, refractory veneers, any kind of edge in the preparation is creating some stress. So the technician should compensate for that one. So using some kind of blocking material uh, to block those areas out. But obviously, when you're blocking something out, so you're placing something over the edge, you're losing space for the restoration. So what I recommend is when you finish your preparation, just go through and uh, with a flex disc, uh, just nicely uh, smooth all the edges on on the prep. And so the impression will be much nicer. And and also for the technician, it's much easier to... And the restoration gonna be uh, much more, uh, how can I say, safer. Yeah, a stronger, more predictable restoration. If you've yeah, got more space, yeah. you can also do more with color as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a great tip. If I need to recommend one book, that's Pascal Magnes and Urs uh, Belser book. Um, that's basically my bible still, and um, that was my biggest imp- inspiration uh, to start photography and. Uh, the recommendation from Pascal is, is really uh, accurate and, and amazing. So if you have any 
doubts or questions about how to prep veneers, just check that book and that's really good. That's great. Um, I'm going to definitely get my hands on that book. Um, thinking of veneers but all, all, all kinds of preparations, what other advice or things that a dentist might do that makes your job harder or mistakes a graduate might make? Um, yeah, maybe not so much for graduate but um, just to mention implants or implant positions. So usually uh, the problems is that the implants are not deep enough. Um, luckily with Tony, I don't have this issue anymore because he is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But before, <laughs> before many time, many times I had issues um, that uh, the implant wasn't deep enough, so you can't create a nice emergence profile, and everything is just much more limited and, and compromised. Um, yeah, for graduate, I I highly recommend to do test uh, preps on store models, or if you if you know a lab and the lab can. Um, meal some PMMA for you. So uh, for this uh, upcoming Ramford webinar, I prepared some models and I use PMMA dyes for uh, as a as a dyes for the restoration. And and I prepped that one with uh, carbide burrs and diamonds and it was really nice. So you can test your skills and you know your different tools uh on pmma dies those works really nice and i'm not sure how close to the natural teeth because i never touched her or actually <laughs> i can try but i have some extracted teeth but uh, <laughs> but pmma looked pretty good for that one so it, it's right nice and dense so it's a milled pmma dye so it is not um like a, a normal you know powder and, and liquid mixture so it's really dense and, and homogeneous so you can you can practice and uh, practice makes you better yeah well exactly it's like you were saying early in your career you know you're just practicing you're doing you know doing demo models it's it's the same for us it's the same for graduate dentists if we want to be good at what we do we need to practice and and that you know we might get busy in our general dental practice but we need to take a step back use models and and improve our skills yeah. Is there any other advice you can think of? Perhaps it might be around photography or something else for dentists, particularly the younger dentists, the early stage dentists, to help them improve quicker. I think uh, maybe I, I tell what I what helped me, and I think the way I improved myself is when I saw something and I liked. It doesn't matter; it's a photograph or a restoration. I try to copy. So, as you know, with digital photography, you can. You know, you don't waste any kind of uh, material or any money. So just take photos and, and, and try to change different uh, settings and different positions. And so if you see a photograph on online, Instagram, Facebook, or in a book, so uh, Pascal Mayer's book was for me that uh, I saw some really nice photographs. And I, for a while, a couple of weeks, I just tried to imitate the same or create the same kind of photos. And uh, at the beginning, I only used uh, desk lamps uh, with some uh, papers. And um, with that one, I, I learned, you know, from the mistakes and I tried different positions, different techniques, and eventually I could make the same kind of or similar kind of photograph. So it doesn't matter if it's a restoration, a composite buildup, a ceramic crown or a, or a photograph. Um, if you see something, download to, to your phone, to your computer, on the big screen and try to try to do the same and this is copying so probably not the um how can i say so not the most artistic way but why why you try to copy you learn a lot and once 
you can copy, you can create your own style and you can create uh, different art. I think that's a, a fantastic way to finish this off. Uh, a fantastic advice and something that um, we see your art on Instagram and Facebook and we'll have links to your stuff uh, in the show notes. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and the students and graduates who listen to this, Sabi Hunt. Uh, my pleasure and I hope it was useful. So at the beginning, I was really nervous and <laughs> sweating, but <laughs> now it's much more relaxed. So, And uh, if anyone has uh, any questions, um, probably in the show notes, they, uh, you can put my email address. I'm always uh, really open to help anyone. Um, so, and uh, I have a checklist, a photographic checklist, actually. So if someone is interested, just send me an email and it's a PDF, uh, free of a uh, four page PDF, but of, I think also on OCPD Chunky, we have a, um, a similar. So if someone is interested, um, I'm always happy to share my, my experiences. I think that's really great. I wasn't going to plug it, but you, you, also, Sabi's doing an amazing course. <laughs> I've done part of that course. Um, that's on CPD Junkie, but we will get that in the show notes. So if anyone wants that, that checklist and that information, they can see it. All the stuff we've talked about will be there as well. Thanks again so much for your time, Sabi. Thank you, David. CPD is expensive. Travel, time away from work, hotels, it all adds up. Imagine being able to see the content from world-renowned speakers from all over the globe. Learn about restorative, full mouth work, communication, surgery, and tons more, all from the comfort of your own home. No travel costs, no hotels. That all exists and is getting better every day on the Ripe Academy from Restoring Excellence. For just $29 US per month, you'll get access to some of the best online content and save thousands on the real-life course equivalents. In fact, if you look really closely, you'll actually see me on there. I paid thousands for that course. It was awesome and now it's just $29 US a month to see the same stuff. Find out more on the Ripe Dentistry Group or at restoringexcellence.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com start to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.